right, everybody. So we are still in a low, slow journey in the Gospel of Luke. That is the third piece of literature in your New Testament. And as I always try to remind us of, we've called this series The Scandalous God because it seems like every single story, sermon, interaction Jesus has, he's disrupting stereotypes, right? He's constantly dismantling the ideas that people had, and he does it in scandalous ways. So he's doing things that when God shows up on the scene, you would think God would do it in an A sort of way, but then Jesus does it in like a Z sort of way, and it just kind of throws people off. And so we're doing this entire investigation, not simply because we're like, hey, we want to just understand the message of Jesus, but we're doing it so we can be more like him, right? So in the same way that he was scandalous and touched and changed the world, we too could be scandalous and touch the way the world in the same way that he did. Now, to start off this morning, I want to kind of jump in the, the, the way, way back machine for a minute and take us all the way back to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And even before the Gospel of Luke, I want to take us to the person of Luke. Because it is strange that we have these sections of the Bible that are titled after, after individuals, and we sometimes forget who that individual was or what was driving them. So we call this the Gospel of Luke because Luke is the writer, and Luke was by vocation a physician. And he was a physician that was not of Jewish background. So he is of a Greek or Roman type background. He's what the Bible calls a Gentile. And so for whatever set of reasons in his life, at some point he comes in contact with the message of this itinerant Jewish rabbi but sees him as more than a rabbi. So Luke didn't know Jesus when Jesus was here on earth. He some, seems to follow Jesus later after Jesus dies and rises from the grave. But he hears this message and he's compelled by it. He's changed by this person of Jesus and he sees Jesus not just as a Jewish teacher, he sees Jesus as God and it radically reorients everything he wants to do with his life. So he becomes literally an everyday missionary, right? Like that becomes his heartbeat. And he's so compelled by the person of Jesus, he wants other people from his Gentile Greco-Roman background to understand who Jesus is. And that's why he writes the Gospel of Luke. If you go back to the first four verses of chapter one, you see he's writing it to a friend who has a very Greek name, Theophilus. And he's saying, hey man, I want you to understand what's changed my life and how it can change your life too. And I want us to get together and see other people's lives changed as Gentiles to follow this Jewish Lord and Savior. And so that's motivating his writing. And from that, as he writes the Gospel of Luke, he's writing it in relationship to the background that his life inhabits. It's like me as a pastor. I think about messages and the words I use in relationship to living in the Pacific Northwest. If I was to do this down in Alabama, I would have to come up with different vernacular. I would have a different framework. I would hit things from a different angle, the same truth, but a different angle to speak to that category of people that I would want to be reaching out to. And Luke is doing the same thing. So let me give you an example of this by way of a parallel. So before the Gospel of Luke, you have the Gospel of Mark, and before the Gospel of Mark, you have the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is a Jewish guy. And so he's writing in a framework where he knows that his culture has been very focused on Moses and very focused on the law. So Jesus then for Matthew is kind of put into this context of, I want to show my fellow Jews how Jesus is a truer and better Moses who reveals a deeper meaning of the law, which is love. So that's the whole focus for Matthew. 
Jesus is a truer and better Moses. And Jesus shows us a deeper purpose of the law, which is love. But Luke, on the other hand, he comes out of this world of Caesar and Rome and an empire. And so what he is literally showing Theophilus and his writers, or his readers rather, is that Jesus is a truer and better Caesar who establishes a realm designed to show love. So it's interesting, even if you go back and look at history, uh, before Jesus was called Lord and Savior and Anointed One, Caesar was called Lord, Savior, and Anointed One. Rumor has it that when Caesar was born, there was all these cosmological signs, and in the same way when Jesus is born, there's all these cosmological signs. That doesn't mean that Jesus is stealing away from Caesar, but rather Luke is helping us understand that Jesus is giving a truer and better version of how the world's meant to be, skewed by Caesar, fulfilled in Jesus. So motive then gives us a sense of things. And from that then motive we see that what Luke is constantly doing is showing the scandal of Jesus versus Caesar in some ways, versus Rome, versus the empire. And and part of this, you want to understand that the Roman empire, the virtue that it held dear, this Greco-Roman virtue, was this idea of pride. And pride, as it played out in this sense of kind of uh, honor-shame dichotomy, So if you had true nationalistic pride, you had then honor. And if you didn't have this nationalistic pride, you had shame. And if you didn't live up to the values of Rome, there was dishonor for you. But if you lived up to the values, there was honor. That's the idea. But then Jesus rolls in with these kingdom virtues. And instead of it being pride and honor-shame mentalities... It was humility and grace and love. So it's upside down and backwards from the way that their culture had valued things. And when we get into chapter 17 today, which is where we're at, we're going to see that pressure applied. So to prepare our minds and our hearts today, I want to give us all a moment of silence just to settle our hearts, prepare our minds, go to Jesus, ask him to open us up, and then I'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll get right into it today. Jesus, what I love about you is that you love us exactly where we're at. And what I love about you is that you lovingly apply coaching and pressure and inspiration to move us from where we're at to where you more want us even to be. And I know today, as we look at these four little sermonettes of yours in Luke 17, that that's what you're doing. You're you're putting us in positions that press us to uncomfortable places, but in doing that, it reveals what your kingdom's all about and why it's upside down backwards and changes the world. And so I ask that you would open us up to analyze, look at our own lives, and, and really long to see these truths then played out in a faithful and humble way before you. So guide us and show us, Jesus, how your words shape our lives to change the world. In your kind name, amen. So Luke chapter 17, that is where we're at. Also, we do have notes in the app if you want to follow along with those notes. Um, But for the last few chapters here in Luke, we've obviously been investigating this kind of clash between Jesus versus religion, right? That's been the content of a lot of this. Um, 
But, but now in Luke, you, you see there's a little bit of a, a, a change that's going to be occurring, right? There's a shift where Jesus isn't going to be sparring with religion as much, though in some ways it's still going to be there because they kill him by the end of this book, right? So there's still some of the sparring matches there. But now there seems to be more urgency on the part of Jesus to begin to guide his disciples. They're on their way to Jerusalem. The cross is in store from that. There's going to be this giant explosion of the gospel, the kingdom, and the church. And so Jesus is really wanting to make sure that these guys are ready for the big reveal. Right? So he's beginning to speak into their lives some things that they need to know about. But in this, he's doing this in the lives of people that come from a background. Right? Just as I was sharing how Luke comes from a background and he's writing in the context of that background, these followers of Jesus, Peter, Andrew, James, John, the list of fellows, they come from a background. Part of that background is the very religious background that has been fighting with Jesus now for the majority of Luke's gospel. But the other part of that background is simply that Greco-Roman background as well. And some of the identity and ideologies that flow in there and how the Jews would resist that and fight that. And all of these tensions are in place in this section. And so what Jesus is trying to address then is that these disciples shaped by religion and shaped by Rome are going to be tempted in the name of Jesus to rely on the principles of religion in Rome to get their job done. That's always going to be our tension. We're always going to feel this dual threat from turning kind of to the most corrupt forms of religion or the most corrupt forms of our way we structure societies and, and using those in the name of Jesus to get kingdom work done. And so Jesus is saying, no, 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 my way is different than that way. And you got to make sure that you do things in the world my way, not the way the world or religious world would, would do these things, right? That's his heart behind this whole thing. And if I was to distill that down and say, what is the fundamental difference between Jesus and all the other stuff? It's this simple word, pride. It's pride. If you look at all religious atrocities, pride is at the core of that. If you look at all social upheaval, unrest, war, and destruction, pride is at the heart of that. And, and so what Jesus is going to do in this little package here in Luke 17 is try to warn not just his disciples back then, but us as disciples today, us as followers of Jesus. He wants to warn us of pride, and he wants us to have the antidote to pride, which is humility. And so he tells these four little sermonettes, if you will, to his disciples. Now, I'll be honest, when you first look at these four things in the first 10 verses of chapter 17, they're kind of strange. And what I mean by that is you will read them and they almost feel disjointed. Like you're like, how did he come up with putting these four together? Was it like Luke was like, oh, I've got some open space. What should I do? I've got these four weird stories. I'll jam them all in here with no sense of context, but hey, we'll run with it. Is like that the spirit? Well, on the surface of it, it kind of looks that way. But if we get below the surface of a little bit, I think a theme does emerge. And he's teaching these four concepts, all designed to show us earnest, humble Christianity. Like a type of Christianity in its purest form. And so if you're following along on our notes today, we're going to look at these four themes. And it starts with the very first one in your notes. It's the idea of humility and self-awareness. Humility and a genuine sense of awareness of oneself and what one's conduct or words can do. 
So it starts in verse 1 of chapter 17. One day Jesus said to his disciples, There will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. Now, it's interesting, when you read this parallel in the Gospel of Matthew, the context is completely different. It's literally about little kids, right? Little kids are coming to him, and they want to push him away, and he's like, whoa, wait, don't, don't make the little one stumble, right? That's the context there. In Luke, there are no kids to be found in sight of this section, right? So who are the little kids? Well, here it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the very types of people that have been coming to Jesus as of late, So it's the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the outsiders, the Gentiles, the unwanted, the unloved, the undesired. They're all flocking to Jesus, and it's freaking religion out. Religion's going, no, 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 those are not good religious people. And he's like, right, but they're the ones that need the gospel. They need the kingdom. They need to sense the love of God. I've come for the sick, not the healthy. Like, that's his whole focus, right? So all of these masses of people are, in essence, the children, Today, we call them baby Christians, maybe. Or we call them new believers, fresh to the faith, learning what it means to grow up into a mature person. That's the idea that you have here. So to just get us a sense of direction, when he talks about the little children, it's those who have decided they want to follow Jesus. That's the context of this. But in this, there are some issues. Because when you read the passage, then it begs the question, to whom... And about what is this passage warning? Or maybe to say it different, who might be the types of people who would be the millstone people? Did you have the millstone put around their neck and thrown into the sea? And, and what is falling away in this? And which body of people should be most concerned about their actions causing people to fall away from following Jesus? Like, those should be the questions that we're asking. And I raise all of this because I I, I found there's been a tendency in my own life historically about this passage. And I thought, oh, I know what millstone people are. They're the real awful people. They're the terrible people that want to tempt individuals to sexual immorality or tempt Christians to kind of relativism when it comes to morality or they want to tempt people into spiritual idolatry in some way. So in other words, the millstone people are the outsiders, the disbelievers, the disenfranchised who are atheists and agnostics or whatever, and they're constantly looking at followers how they can tempt them to sin. That's the way I think we sometimes will read this passage. As though, you know, The world is the threat. And it's understandable. I want to be clear about this. I I believe uh, the world around us is always in recruitment mode, right? There's no doubt about that. There's plenty of people I know that are like, man, I would love to snatch people out out of religion or out of Christianity or church and snatch them back into the world, certainly. There's plenty of people who are saying, hey, let me help you deconstruct your faith all the way to disbelieving it. That's true. But is that what Jesus is talking about here? I don't believe it is. While I think those dynamics are true, I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Because again, just slow for a second and look at these three verses. In this context, it's Jesus talking to whom? His disciples. 
So he's talking to not just his followers, but his most committed core of followers. And he's saying to his most committed core of followers, you yourselves watch out. Even when he talks about the fact that it would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck. He doesn't say their necks. It's just a sense of your neck. Therefore, watch yourselves. In other words, this passage, more than it being for the outsiders that don't believe, we want to realize that what Jesus is doing is he's talking to us Christians, us followers. And he's saying to us, you guys got to watch your lives. You got to watch your words. You got to watch your conduct because there's things that you could do that can harm those other people who believe. Maybe they're baby Christians, they're new to it, they're growing in it, they don't fully understand it, whatever it is. You got to make sure that you don't do things that tempt them to literally walk away from the faith because that's the idea here, right? Then to cause these little ones to fall into sin means to fall away from the faith. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why this is so dear to me. Um, I have a deep heart for walkaways. Like, I legitimately do. If anybody listens to the Everyday Missionary podcast, this verse right here drives that podcast. So, so when I talk about at times, maybe in the podcast, like, I believe evangelicalism has to clean itself up. I believe evangelicalism's done some damage. In part, what I'm getting at there is I think there have been many occurrences and cases of people that have left the Christian faith not because they were convinced by disbelievers, but because they were so wounded by the church, wounded by believers, that, that the messes that we sometimes create in-house drive people out of the faith. Now understand, I think it's true that the world is trying to pull, but there are certainly times where the church is really good at pushing too. And it's a dual threat. And, and, and so I was thinking about it. I'm just curious, sorry for the instant polling data, but how many of you, and I'll ask for a showing of hands, how many of you has at least one person in your life where they used to be a Christian and they're no longer a Christian and among their reasons is I was hurt by the church or I was hurt by other Christians? How many have a person like that in their life? There's a number of us, Right? And it's amazing, you do it too, because there's so many things that can come from that. They're like, I, 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 was, I was hurt by somebody that was judgmental of me. I was hurt by somebody who called out my stuff, but then were hypocritical in their own lives. Or I was hurt by somebody that said they were sharing with me the truth and love, but I saw no love. I just saw judgment and kind of condescension in the process. I had lunch with a, a person this last summer um, who has left the faith and, and uh, they were just telling me their story of what drove it and, and I'm sitting there for about an hour and a half as they're walking through the story of how dear the church was to them how important Jesus was to them and just how catastrophically it erupted and at the end of that story, I couldn't say, oh, you misread that, or oh, no, see, this is where you didn't understand the heart there. I just listened to the story, and by the end, I'm like, that's a millstone story. That's where the church almost left you almost no option but to say there must not be a God after all this. Right? That's the kind of thing that Jesus is warning about here. And, and, and again, just in the spirit of openness, in, in my 30 years of pastoring, right, and being in ministry and everything else, 
I have found that a constant or consistent theme of people who kind of deconvert is wounds within Christianity or a part of it, right? Things that were done or things that were hypocritical, things that were judgmental, things that were mishandled or whatever, that that was just true. And then being even more open, I can honestly say in 30 years of pastoring, um, the amount of disbelieving people that have hurt me, wounded me, I felt persecuted by, I can count like on half a hand. But the amount of people who say they follow Jesus, who have done hurtful things, said hurtful things, I don't have enough digits to count that. Just mean emails or, uh, you know, like uh, anonymous letters, harsh words said, not asking me what I believe, just telling me what I think. And I mean, it's just pretty amazing. And again, just staying really open for a minute, there has been a couple of seasons in my entire Christian life and in that pastoring world where I have deeply had struggles with doubt. And both of those times, it was the conduct of Christians that made me begin to go like, man, is this real? If they act like this, is there real power in this thing? Does Jesus really transform people? Because if this is the case, but this is my experience, what do I do? So I don't bring this up as though I think, oh, this is one of those things that can happen. I bring it up because I think it's one of those dangers that often happens. And sometimes it can happen at the hands of the people that have the deepest conviction about the truth and Christianity and Scripture that, that in that conviction, it is so potent and it's so straight as an arrow, it's just as deadly. So that doesn't mean we shouldn't have conviction, passion, commitment to our faith, but we want to remember that in the context of all of that, one of the dangers is that we can get into millstone practices. We become overbearing, we become demanding, we become judgmental, we mishandle other people, and from that, you go, man, I'm out, I'm out. See, I think that's what Jesus is warning about here, which is why he's telling his core leaders, watch out that you don't do this, so you must be on guard. That's the heart. Now, here's another moment of transparency. Um, I will one day stand before Jesus, and he's going to have a handful of my millstone moments. So I'm just taking ownership of that too. When I was a young training pastor and a young pastor, I was a part of a kind of a fundamentalist evangelical um, kind of organization slash network. And in that, there was this sense of we've got the right truth, we've got the right theology, we've got the right way, we're the most biblically oriented ones. And in that context, there was a number of people that I was awesome at shooting the wounded. I was awesome at beating sheep, right? I thought it was so smart, so right, so solid, so godly. And there are people in Matt's list of history that Matt is the reason they said, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I'm a millstone person. I'm a millstone person. I will stand before Jesus and I'll say, yep, Matt, that's on you. Now, does that freak me out? It doesn't freak me out. It sobers me to say, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do that. 
I could have addressed those issues in completely different ways, saturated with grace, saturated with understanding. I mean, Jesus lays it out perfect when he says, hey, don't be a judge lest you be judged, right? That beautiful story, he tells us, you've got planks sticking out of your own eyes, they have splinters in their eyes, get the plank out of your own eye, and then you can deal with the splinter in theirs. And I love that illustration because if you've ever dealt with trying to get a speck out of somebody's eye, you don't clobber it out. It's slow, it's cautious, it's caring, it's checking on them the whole time. I just want to help. As opposed to, hey, you got something in your eye, get that out, right? Like, it's not going to help. See, that, that's the conduct of the millstone person. And Jesus is like, man, don't fall victim to that. It just reminds me that we, as believers, we're what the world gets to look at. I keep trying to push this issue. The we can't play this game that says, hey, don't look at me for a picture of Jesus. Look at Jesus. Because they're like, okay, I've got a book that I don't understand, and then I got you all. Right? Like, let's be honest about this. When we tell people, don't, don't look at me. I'm going to fail you. Look at Jesus. They're like, you're, you're what I got. I got these four sections of the Bible where, where Jesus sometimes sounds like Yoda to me, and I don't know what to do with it. And then I've got you Christians. A lot does ride on our shoulders. It's totally true. And I know this kind of makes us feel like, ooh, geez, do I want to, want to be his ambassador? Yeah, I want to be his ambassador. I want to show people who he really is by really knowing him and being like him and then from that being blessed. And so I don't want to be one of those Christians behaving badly, but I'm okay because I'm saved. I want to be one of those Christians that say, you know what, I want you to be able to look at my life and see Jesus in what I do. So I don't want to be engaged in millstone stuff. I want to be different. So I need to be self-aware in humility. Well, this leads into the second area that I think is important because I think these things have interconnectedness, right? Sort of spills out of the first. So the number two thing in your notes is that we need to have humility in forgiveness. As much as we are self-aware, we must be forgiving so, watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then, if there's repentance, forgive. For even if that person wrongs you seven times a day, and each time turns again and asks for your forgiveness, you must forgive. Now, here's what's tricky about this, right? That word rebuke. And if we're just, again, looking at the context here, we just saw that we're warned to not be millstone-type people that cause the children to leave, but then we're immediately told to rebuke people. So you're like, okay, but a lot of people have been hurt by the church would say they were in part hurt by the church or by Christians because they felt rebuked by them. So how do I make sure I'm not a millstone person, but I still fulfill Jesus' call to rebuke people that are in sin? Well, I'm going to see if I can pull this back from the edge from this a little bit, and I think this is going to be super helpful for all of us, right? Because part of it is when we hear the word rebuke, it can be like a word that triggers some thoughts or feelings. Maybe back in the day, you saw a televangelist. It's like, I'll rebuke you, devil, in the name of the Lord. You're like, whoa, rebuke is a mean word, right? Rebuke's got teeth. Rebuke's got bite, right? Like, if you're going to rebuke somebody, it's like you're in their face. It's like, it's like a baseball coach in the face of an umpire. That's rebuking, right? And I get it. 
Because in some contexts, that's really how the word has sort of been spun out there, and we think that's what it means to rebuke. Rebuke is like the harshest form of confrontation. Like before that, you have like more subtle forms like, hey, can we have a chat over coffee? But when you're real serious, it's like, no, I'm here to rebuke you, right? Like that's the way it can kind of feel. And like I said, it's understandable because here's the deal. When we look at this word rebuke in English and its etymology, uh, we, we get a sense of what the feel of the word was. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the way Jesus is using this word is the same in which we use it in English. So I'm going to give you three little highlights about what I see here. So the first is the word rebuke. If you look at our etymology, it literally means to beat back bushes. That's what rebuke is. So you can appreciate if you're like, I felt rebuked, i.e., I felt like they beat me back like I was a, a thicket. That would be proper because that's our English word. But when Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, he writes in uh, the language of the Greeks. It's the Greek language. And the word here that we translate into rebuke is this combination of two words, epi and tomao. Epi tomao, which you're like, epic tomato. You'll remember it now, right? But it doesn't mean epic tomato. Epi, ready, means suitably suitably. The front part of this word is suitably, and then tamao means esteem or place value. So, instead of it being beat back their sin bush, it actually means suitably esteem or place value on the circumstance. Suddenly it, it de-escalates what this word is. In fact, here's some definitions of this word and some of the Greek tools that we have at our disposal. It means to properly assign value as is fitting to the situation. So it's discernment. It's trying to look at this in a discerning way. It's to be building on the situation so as to redirect it in some capacity. And while rebuke can have a, a sense of this in maybe a very unique context, the fundamental sense is wanting to prevent something from going wrong. Here's why I think this is valuable, understanding how this Greek word is utilized. Instead of it being, uh, you're wrong, I know, I'm going to address your problem, there's instantly a humility in this. This is, I know less than half of everything. I'm not certain my perspective is totally right. So I'm going to come in with wisdom and with sensitivity, and I want to suitably try to esteem and weigh the circumstance. Which reminds me again exactly of the whole don't judge with a stick, but rather come in that they have a splinter and you're trying to help them get that out of their eye. Like the tone is so utterly different. The spirit of this is so different. So one is very humble, whereas the other version, our more familiar version of like just rebuke them, is a bit proud. Takes offense before it tries to take in all the facts, right? That's kind of the difference. But knowing then the definition of the word, these two words put together to make up this singular word, that then gives us a sense of direction on the tone of rebuke. Because if the meaning is sensible, weighing, evaluating, well then the tone should be that, be that too. So if somebody says, man, I got rebuked by somebody, it should not be, man, I felt criticized and attacked and belittled and it was insensitive. That's not rebuke, that's somebody being a butt. Really? See, rebuke here is going to be, uh, I'm looking at the person, I'm looking at the offense, 
and I'm trying to figure out the best way to talk to them in such a way to get to the most dear result we need, right, which is healing and everything else. And so it's trying to figure out the best course of action, the best words to use, the best approach to take to then come into a person's life and point out something that has happened. And what is the real goal? What's the mark of success? Well, here I'd say it's forgiveness that is issued because of repentance. That's how you know it succeeded. That you confronted them and rebuked them is not success. That's a step in a process. But forgiveness issued for repentance that is made aware of, like that's the mark of success. And keep in mind, we've talked about repentance before. It just means a change of mind. You've got them thinking in a different way. So you come to them and say, hey, I've been thinking, I've noticed, I want to help you out on this. And they go, man, I see where you're coming from. I get what you're saying to me. Thank you for that. I have wronged you. Forgive me. That's your cycle. And the final stage of the cycle is when they go, you are right, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? The final stage is, and you forgive them. And then here's what's hard. What happens if 10 minutes later they do it again? And you go, ah, oh, we just talked about this, right? And like, oh, yeah, forgive me. I forgive you. Three minutes later, they do it again. Like, just, I gotta, they're not getting it then. I gotta, I gotta, and then they go, oh, we get it. I'm sorry, you were right. Forgive me. He says, man, if they keep doing that, you keep doing that. But see, again, I go back to what the heart behind this whole thing is. It's not to get something off our chests where we were hurt, offended, or bothered. It's to recouple relationship. That's, that's the heart that Jesus has in this whole thing. And so we want to have that heart in this whole thing. In addition to this, just really quick, um, I, I want us to notice that it says... Uh, if a person sins against you, you forgive them up to seven times. Not just up to seven times, because Jesus elsewhere says like, 70 times seven. You're like, oh, that's a lot. I gotta do math now, you know? Like, too much. But, but the point is you just keep forgiving, right? But, but it says sins against you or you forgive them seven times. In other words, this is not a command that says if you see any Christian, even if you don't know them sinning, go deal with them. It's about if somebody sins against you, you go to them and you see it reconciled, right? And you know why that can be hard? Sometimes if somebody wrongs us, it's a whole lot easier to just not go talk to them. It's a lot easier to ignore them, to judge them, to resent them, to tell our friends about how big of a butt they really are. But boy, it takes real humility to come alongside. It takes real humility to talk to a person and again, not just get something off your chest, but rather connect with their heart. That is altogether different. But when we do this, we go through this cycle of we see, we weigh, we come alongside, they see what they've done, they rethink, they ask for our forgiveness, and we forgive. You know what that highlights? The gospel. That's just a micro package of what Jesus did for us. Colossians chapter 3, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. You know how many churches or families or friendships would still be together if we just took that simple little section and applied it in a consistent pattern? It's not easy, right? It, it's simple on paper. It's not easy to do, but it is powerful. And it just makes us ask, like, is there a person or persons in my life that I need to do this with? They've hurt me, and now I just resent them for it, and instead I need to go to them and see if I can clear it up. Now, you may not be able to clear it up. You might lovingly come alongside, and you share this stuff, and they're like, ah, pound sand. 
You tried, right? And sometimes it might go all the way through the circuit and you forgive them, but it doesn't mean you have to have the exact same relationship with them you did before. Maybe you, in some context you go, but there needs to be some healthy boundaries because this person is violent or dangerous or whatever. You still need to forgive them, but it doesn't mean you have to always just put yourself right back into the same extreme circumstances. It's okay to have boundaries in a gracious way. But maybe we just haven't even taken the steps to do this thing, and yet this is what shows the gospel to the world when we do these types of processes of come, share, connect, repent, forgive, move forward. Now, this is going to take more than commitment. It's going to take the third thing in your notes, humility and faith. On the heels of this, the apostle said to Jesus, show us how to increase our faith. And so the Lord answered. He says, you have faith as small as a mustard seed. You could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. Now, just, uh, just being open, uh, the last part of that, that's just weird. You're like, I got all kinds of faith. What are you going to do with it? I'm going to start tearing up bushes and shoving them out in the water. You know, it's like kind of a funny thing to me. But it's hyperbole to make a point, right? If you had this kind of faith, you could do radical things like start depositing an entire orchard out in the Mediterranean. It would be so fun to watch. But if we understand the context here, I don't think these guys are just asking this question out of thin air. I don't think Jesus has told them these two things about humility and self-awareness and forgiveness, and they're like, oh, okay, cool. How about we talk about faith now? Now, I believe it's directly related to the last two things. Here's what I mean. It takes faith to trust that God will grow other people. And it takes faith to lovingly come alongside and receive people who have wounded us and we need to seek this idea of reconciliation. It takes faith to believe humility gets things done in a world that is driven by pride and certainty. It takes faith to patiently, lovingly, thoughtfully, watchfully, self-aware and repeatedly forgive those who sin against us. In other words, it takes faith to live the Christian faithful life. Like it's, It just takes faith to do these things. And that's why we call it the Christian faith and not the Christian fact. Right? Facts are easy. You just accept them. They are what they are. They don't require trust. Right? But the Christian faith requires us to, to grow, to adapt, to put our lives in God's hands when sometimes we're not even sure what the result is going to be. That's why it's the Christian faith. But when we do this, when we act in faith when it comes to self-awareness, when we act in faith when it comes to forgiveness, we're saying, God, I'm trusting you with this. And what I love about what Jesus says here about faith is he says it's not about the quality of your faith or the quantity Notice that, right? Quality and quantity, it could be this microscopic, teeny little mustard seed faith. He's like, it doesn't matter the quantity and quality, it just matters that you act in faith, that you take the actual step. And I think this is really important because um, I have found that sometimes people can state, assume, even kind of brag that they have really tremendous faith, right? But, but the test of faith is what we do with it, not that we claim to have it. So you might have one person that says, you know what, I struggle a lot with doubt, but they do what Jesus tells them to do. Well, you have another person that claims they have a ton of faith, but they don't do what Jesus tells them to do. The reality is one of those people who has a lot of doubt but does what Jesus tells them to do, they're acting in faith. Jesus says that's a mustard seed-like faith. The person that claims it, touts it, celebrates it, reads about it, writes about it, sings about it, but, but doesn't act on it, Jesus is like, that's not faith. It's proclamation, but it's, it's not faith. Faith acts. Or maybe to say it differently, number four in your notes, 
it embodies humility and obedience. Humility and obedience. And, and I highlight humility in context of this because, again, it goes back to my background. So, so the network I trained in, the church I trained in, and everything else, we thought we were the most biblical church in all of Spokane. We were the most godly church. We were the most theologically oriented church. We taught the Bible more faithfully than everybody else. We were God's gift to Christianity in Spokane, right? And we knew it. We knew we were right. We would look at a lot of the other churches. I would say we probably thought 70% of the other churches in Spokane weren't even saved, right? That's how right we were. And so we made a big deal about discipleship, obedience, doing what the scriptures say. And the problem was we had this focus on obedience, but we were so proud in the context of it, our obedience meant nothing, right? It's like we thought we were proud in the name of Jesus, but we were just proud in the name of Jesus, right? That was kind of the difference. And I remember a few years ago, I took some of our staff from here at Redemption over to Spokane, and we did this church tour where we just started going to these different churches and just asking questions of their leaders, right? And I thought, this would be kind of fun. We'll go to all these diverse environments and just kind of learn from them and everything else. And I decided to go back to my training church, and I also pastored in that church for a little while. I thought it would be just kind of fun. So we sat down, we're talking with the guys and everything else, and they're like, hey, so where are you going next? We said, oh, we're going to go to this other church called Life Center, which is like one of the largest churches in Spokane really big mega church kind of thing and they're like oh you guys are going to love center like it was derogatory and and it's funny because that church now is much more gracious than it used to be then and that's still what the tone was right oh you're going to love center and I remember we as a staff left and we got in the car and we thought how strange that you get down a road that you use love as a derogatory I mean, that's how far off the path you can get, thinking you're obedient and you're mocking love, right? That's the danger. And, and, and so when I talk about obedience here, and what Jesus is calling to us to in obedience is not necessarily just more certainty, but humility in that certainty. So verse 7, when a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? He says, No. Master says, prepare my meal, put on an apron, serve me while I eat, and then you can go eat later. And does, that, and does that master then thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? He says, of course not. He says, in the same way, when you obey what you should, when I tell you what to do and you do it, uh, he, he says, all you need to say to yourself is that we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. So his point is obedience, Right? But we want to keep obedience in its context of humility. Therefore, the person says, man, I'm a pretty good Christian. We're better than most Christians. In fact, we've really kind of cracked this whole Christian code thing. Probably not the best Christian, right? Because the best kind of Christian is not proud in their faithfulness, but rather they're humble and they're just shocked that Jesus would invite them to follow him and live like him, right? Humility versus pride is all the difference. Because we have to remember, when we signed up to follow Jesus, we didn't sign up to serve. That's one of the misnotions of it. Oh, I follow Jesus, I serve now. No, we, we signed up to be servants. That's different. Serving is easy, servants is tough. So we're meant to be servants to the message of the kingdom, servants to fellow members in the kingdom, servants to those we're seeking to reach for the kingdom, and servants to the means by which Jesus advances his kingdom. 
So we are indentured now. And so in that indentured spirit, in these things that we've learned, we don't want to mistake pride as love of God. It's not love of God. Humility is love of God. Therefore, in pride, we don't want to derail others' faith in the name of God. And in pride, we don't want to fail to forgive others without the heart of God. And in pride, we don't want to claim to have faith in God while failing to obey in humility as God calls us to do the tough stuff. This is why I say the core of this section is all about humility. Being proud is easy. Being Jesus-like is hard. But that's what we signed up for when we signed on the dotted line, right? We said, all right, I'm following you. I'm giving my life away to you so you can use me as you see fit. And he's like, awesome. Go be the least of these. Go be the last. Go be the servant of all. Go love God, neighbor, and enemy. And just a sense of humble self-awareness and humble forgiveness and humble faith all in an act of humble obedience. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, as we come before your table of Eucharist, communion, fellowship this morning, I pray that we are all coming humbled by your humility. That even all of this isn't a heavy hand, but rather we go, oh, that's right, that's right. It's not about my ease or my comfort or my, my whatever it is, my, my, my desires for this life, but rather it's, it's I've signed on a dotted line to follow you, to be humble like you, to give myself away to others like you, and therefore it means I don't want to cause others to stumble. I don't want to be unforgiving of others. I don't want to miss out on trusting you in the hard things and obeying you because I trust you. Jesus, we thank you that you care enough to invest into us your heart and your life and your motives for how we live. And I pray that more than us walking out here today thinking we need to work really hard to do this, no, we would kind of go to the center point of this whole thing, which was faith in you, trust in you to do these things for us, and that we will trust that doing these things your way will actually change the world. As we thank you that we get to approach your table this morning, our union and communion with you so we can remember what you did, how you did it for us, so we can go and do it for you. Jesus, we love you and thank you in your name.